the way it works on Yom Kippur is as we move along the holiday, it gets kind of more and more and more and more intense or powerful as we move to the holiday. The climax, of course, is the Ne'ilah prayer, the final prayer. And the climax is at the end of the Ne'ilah prayer when we have the Shema Yisrael and we blow the shofar. So that's the final climax of Yom Kippur. So right before the Ne'ilah prayer, the fourth prayer on Yom Kippur is the Mincha prayer. At that prayer, we read the Torah. We don't generally read the Torah in the afternoons. We only do it a couple times a year. But on Yom Kippur, we read the Torah in the afternoon. And in addition to that, we also have a half Torah. For the half Torah on Yom Kippur afternoon, we read the book of Jonah. We read the entire book. So... Of Jonah. It is the longest Haftorah of the year. Now, it's not a very big book. It's all of four chapters, the book. But we read this book, the book of Jonah. And um, we read the book of Jonah. And we tell the story of Jonah and, how, uh, and his, his story, which I'm going to tell you in a moment. Now, and as we'll tell the story, we'll see why it's so important and why we read it on Yom Kippur. Now first, just a little bit about the story of Jonah. The book of Jonah itself is one of what's called the Asar, the 12 small books. So we have 24 books of our scripture. Um, of those 24 books, there's one book called Asar. Asar means the 12. It's 12 shorter books, very short books. Jonah is one of those very those 12 very short books. It's fairly short. It's only four chapters. So it's fairly short. We read it on Yom Kippur. It's still the longest Haftorah of the year, but for a book, it's a fairly short book. Who was Jonah? So Jonah is also mentioned elsewhere, in addition to in his book. He's mentioned also in the book of Kings. He is a disciple of the prophet Elisha who in turn, Elisha was a disciple of the very famous prophet, Eliyahu Hanavi, or Elijah the prophet. And so he was a, um, he was a prophet around 600 BCE. So we're talking about 2,600 years ago. So his name actually was Yonah ben Amitai. His father's name was Amitai. And the Talmud tells us something very interesting about him. It says, how did Yonah become a prophet? What made Yonah a prophet? So we're going to talk next week about the happiness of Sukkot. And Sukkot is the happiest holiday. And he was in the temple rejoicing on Sukkot. And he rejoiced so much that God gave him in return the gift of prophecy. And that's the gift you can get from being very, very happy on Sukkot. So God gave him that gift of prophecy. So anyway, he became a prophet. And God comes to him and tells him to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. Now, a little bit of geopolitics from 2,600 years ago. Assyria was the first of the Middle Eastern empires that rose in what today we call the Iron Age. So prior to, prior to the, um, the rise of the Assyrian Empire, the Middle East, or what was called the Fertile Crescent, which is an area that covers um, from Iraq all the way down to Egypt, 
The, that whole area was many, many, many different small, large kingdoms and uh, different kingdoms, of which Israel had two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom during this period. Israel was split into two. The Assyrian Empire was an empire that began to build and gradually capture the entire Fertile Crescent, most of the civilized world. They end up getting as far as, uh, they end up moving along the Fertile Crescent. They capture all of modern-day Iraq, all of modern-day Syria. They move into Israel. They get as far as Jerusalem. And they actually, they're, they're, they collapse at the gates of Jerusalem. There's a big question among historians whether they ever made it to Egypt or not. Um, but they, their armies collapse at the gates of Jerusalem. So the Assyrian Empire is now building, and it's now a threat to Israel, and they're threatening Israel. Nineveh is a massive city, the capital of this Assyrian Empire, and it's really the largest city of the ancient world. It's a gigantic city. So the Assyrians not only, how did the Assyrians hold their empire together? They, have a ver- they didn't have roads like later the Persians and the Romans are going to build to be and garrisons all over the place. How do they hold their empire together in an area so large where before modern roads and modern transportation, it would take them months to move an army from one end of the empire to the other? How did they do it? So they had a, a policy of assimilation. Every kingdom that they captured, wherever they kept, whenever they captured a kingdom, they always moved the people out of that kingdom to another area and tried to assimilate everyone until over time they created a single Aramaic-speaking people all across what, that whole Middle Eastern area. So they were really a threat to Israel. So God appears to Jonah and tells him, go to Nineveh and warn the people of Nineveh that they should change their ways and repent from their wickedness. We're not told what their wickedness was. Later, after Jonah's warning, we're going to say they repent from their evil ways and return the stolen property in their possession. So we know, we can deduce that their, their evil ways was corruption. Or thievery. They were stealing from each other. And as a rule, God punishes Gentile societies for corruption and thievery. Because those are universal ethics. right? For lack of morals and idolatry, he doesn't punish them as much as he does for thievery and corruption as he did also for the people before the flood. So, anyway, God gives the, these instruction, instructions to Jonah... And Jonah decides instead of going to Nineveh, he's going to run away. And so he goes to the port of Jaffa, Jaffa, and over there he finds a ship going to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? Tarshish is actually mentioned many times in Scripture as a place where ships go to. Um, There are different... It's a place that ships go to. Now if you're in Israel... A harbor... Where do, where, do ship, where do ships go? So, so some say, some, some commentaries say that it's modern-day Tunisia, um, and others say that it's, northern, it's, an, it's a place in northern Lebanon. Um, others say that it's Cyprus, um, the Greek island today. Uh, but anyway, Tarshish is mentioned many times. So he, take, he goes on this boat, and... There's a storm on the boat. 
And so everybody turns and prays to their God. Meanwhile, Jonah himself goes down to the bottom of the boat and he goes to sleep. (laughs) The captain of the ship comes and wakes him up and says in famous words, Lama ata nirdam, why are you sleeping? Go get up and call to your God. Go pray to your God. So clearly Jonah knew why there was a storm, right? Why was he sleeping? He knew why there was a storm because God was punishing him for trying to run away. He perhaps, he thought that there's no point praying to God because after all, God was after him. Perhaps he intended to bring down the ship with him. Maybe he thought that God wouldn't punish anyone, everyone else because of him. Anyway, the people of the ship decide they're going to draw lots. They're going to make a lottery and put everyone's name in a lottery and see who, whoever they pick out, that's the person who is responsible for this storm. That was a common way back then to find the culprit. So they make a lottery and lo and behold, who comes up in the lottery? Jonah. So they turn to Jonah and they say, who are you? Where do you come from? What do you do? What's going on? So Jonah says, I am in, also in famous words, he says, Ivri Anochi, I am a Hebrew, Veselokim, Aniyare, and I fear God who created um, the, uh, who created the sea and the dry land, and I am running away from him, and he is after me. So what do we do? He says, throw me overboard and you'll be fine. They don't want to throw him overboard. They try steering the ship back to dry land. They cannot steer him back to dry land. They beg God to forgive them for throwing a man overboard. And then they throw Jonah overboard. What God do they beg to? It doesn't say presumably to Jonah's God, the God of the heavens that Jonah worships. But it doesn't say explicitly. They turn to God. We assume when it says God, usually in Scripture, it's our God, the God. So he asked them to. So as soon as they throw him overboard, the ship that the storm immediately subsides. They know that it was all Jonah's fault. And so when they come back to land, they all offer sacrifices to God, our God. That is God of the the God, um, thanking him and recognizing God, recognizing the great miracle that he had performed. What happens with Jonah, meanwhile? So the book of Jonah tells us that God doesn't let him drown. He's not letting him out of the mission that he had for him. Instead, he has this big fish come and swallow him. And somehow... And clearly there's no way naturally for this to work. Jonah survives inside this fish for three days. And it doesn't actually say whale in um, scripture. There is no Hebrew word for whale. It just says dag, a fish. Um, It may have been a whale. It was a big fish. Exactly the exact species of fish we don't know. Whales are mammals, smart animals. I don't know. I don't know. It says dag. It says a fish. So... So anyway, Jonah then turns to God and prays to God from the depth of the fish. And it tells us the prayer of Jonah asking God to save him from the depth of the fish. And so 
The fish then spits him out after three days. Jonah now got the message. He goes to Nineveh. And now Jonah announces that in 40 days, as God commands him to go to Nineveh, he announces that in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned, will be destroyed. The people surprisingly take Jonah seriously. The king hears about it and he orders everyone, men, women and children, to fast for three days straight. I guess it's possible. And they fast and they regret their bad. They return the uh, money that they had taken and they all change their ways. He was spat out by the fish, spits him out on the dry land. So God accepts their repentance and they do not destroy the city. Now, Jonah's now very upset that God spared the city of Nineveh. And he turns to God and he says, that's why I didn't want to go. I was afraid they would listen to me and you would spare them. That's why I didn't go to Nineveh. He's so upset, he asks God to take his life. Jonah then leaves the city of Nineveh, and he sits outside the city of Nineveh in the desert. He builds himself a hut. And God makes this plant called a kikayon grow to shade him during the day. The next day, a worm eats the plant and it dies. Now Jonah's in the hot sun. And he's very upset over the loss of the plant. And the heat is unable to bear. And he begs God to, uh, he begs God to forgive him. He begs, God, he begs God sorry, to take his life. God turns to, to Jonah and says, look, you feel bad for this plant that was only there for a day. And you feel bad for it. How can I not feel bad for a city full of so many people like the city of Nineveh, it says, in, in God says, how can I not feel bad for the 1.2 million people that live in this city? So it was a huge city by ancient standards. So this is a very, very interesting story, fascinating story, very famous story. Um, there's some technical questions, like how Jonah survived in the fish. We're going to assume it was a miracle. Um, and how large fish got into the Mediterranean, because the Mediterranean doesn't have large fish. So we're going to not worry about those technical problems right now. It may have had, they just discovered bones of large fish from that period, just the last few months um, from that area in the Mediterranean. But we're going to talk about more the, um, the more serious questions um, that come up and why we read it on Yom Kippur. The big question in this story is, why did Jonah run away from God? What was Jonah thinking? Jonah is a prophet. He's a servant of God. He's only a pious person, only a very holy person becomes a prophet. How could he not want to fulfill God's command and go to Nineveh? So the Midrash explains, based on what it actually says in the book of Jonah, Jonah was afraid that the people of Nineveh would repent and God would save them. That's what he tells God. He says, I didn't want to go because I was afraid they would repent and you would save them. Now, what is wrong with that? Why was Jonah afraid? So there's two reasons. Firstly, the Medrash tells us, Jonah was afraid as to how it would reflect on his own people. Jonah had been warning the, elsewhere in the book of Kings, it tells us, Jonah warned the people of the northern kingdom of Israel that if they don't repent, if they do not change their ways, they will be, um, if they don't change their ways, they will be punished and the Assyrian Empire will invade them. And they will lose their kingdom. 
And indeed, that happens. The northern kingdom is captured by the Assyrian Empire. Jonah warns Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, if you don't repent, God will punish you. Indeed, the southern kingdom does repent and change their ways. So, firstly, Jonah thinks, how will it reflect? I warned Jews to change their ways, and they didn't. And then I go to these non-Jews and warn them to change, and they do. How will that reflect on my own people? Now, other prophets, such as Jonah's teacher's teacher Elijah, were punished for not defending the Jewish people. For not standing up for the Jewish people. Jonah, says the Midrash, stood up for the Jewish people. He said, I'm not going to Nineveh. I don't want them to change. Because how will that reflect on, my, on our people? Even more so, if you think of a geopolitical perspective, Assyria was a mortal threat for Israel. When God tells Jonah that warn the people of Nineveh they better repent or I will turn over the city, Jonah thinks, well, let it, let it be, exactly. Let it be. Let, me turn, let God turn over the city. We'll get rid of the Assyrians once and for all. That would be great. They're our enemy. They are our enemy. Why should we? So Jonah decides to flee. Now, how did he really think he could run away from God? So perhaps he thought that God would respect his concern for the Jewish people and not disturb him. The Midrash says that, God, that Jonah thought that outside of Israel, God would not appear to him. There would be no prophecy. So God could not give him further instructions. Now, we actually know later there were prophets outside the land of Israel. But Jonah thought that he would not get prophecy outside the land of Israel. And that's why he thought he could um, run away. Indeed, God does punish him. God does not kill him for having not listened, but God does punish him, and he goes through this suffering of being thrown into the sea, being swallowed by a fish, which presumably, even if he's in there miraculously, was very uncomfortable. And he prays to God from the depth of the fish, asking God to save him. So um, he goes through all this suffering as punishment for what he had done. And then he does go to the city of Nineveh. Now, why indeed was Jonah and Jonah then when the city when he warns them and they do change their ways Jonah's very disappointed he's extremely disappointed that the city of Nineveh was saved uh, both because that reflects badly on his own people and because now they stand as a threat to his people they're going to capture his his land the land of Israel they're going to destroy the northern kingdom they're going to exile the 10 tribes they're going to assimilate them it's going to be the end of the northern kingdom. They're going to capture much of the southern kingdom. They're a serious threat to Israel. He's very concerned. And he complains to God. What is God's response to him? So God teaches him a lesson. God says, Jonah, very good that you stood up for your people, but you're making a very, very big mistake. What is your mistake? So God makes this kikai and this plant grow. Which Jonah is grateful for because it shades him from the sun, and then the plant dies, and Jonah, um, the plant dies, and Jonah is very upset that he lost the plant. And God said, "Look, you feel bad for a plant because it was helping you out. What about all these people? Yes, they may be your mortal enemies, but there are civilians here, there are children here, innocent people that have done no wrong. That's the words that God used. Don't know their right from their left." How can you not have, how can I not have pity on all of these people? 1.2 million people. Yes, they're a threat to your people. Yes, they're your mortal enemies. 
But how can you not have pity on these people? So we have to understand that ultimately, we do need to have pity on other people, even when they're our enemies. We do need to balance. On the one hand, you have to protect yourself from your enemies. But on the other hand, you have to make sure also to not, that your enemies should not be hard and try to get them to change their ways as well and wish them good as well, want good for them as well. So we learn from the story of Jonah. Why do we read it on Yom Kippur? There are a number of reasons given. There are a lot of very important lessons from the story of Yom Kippur. For one, we learn that you can never run away from God. No matter what you do, you can never run away from God. Secondly, we learn the importance of prayer. Jonah turned to God in prayer, begged God to save him. Thirdly, we learn the importance of repentance. The people of Nineveh were terrible, were horrible. So much so, God was going to destroy them. Yet, God decided not to destroy them just because... Um, God decided not to destroy them just because they changed their ways. We learn that any negative thing that we have, God has planned for us, if we do teshuva, we repent, we change our ways, God will forgive us as well and take away any negative thing. So we learn the power of teshuva. Very powerful thing. It took them only three days to change their ways and that was it. So we can, you have to truly change your ways. It's not enough just to cry on Yom Kippur, go to Shul, and then go back to what you were doing before. But Jonah was able to, but the people of Nineveh changed their ways. So we learned a lot of very important lessons from Jonah. And perhaps the final lesson from Jonah is that God, we say, has pity on all of his people and concern for everyone. And we too must have concern for every person, for all of God's creations. We must have concern for everyone. And um, this is important today um, when we talk about whether it's policing or whether we talk about um, our um, wars. It's important that we have, or even in our own neighborhoods, we have people who you say they deserve what they're getting. Sometimes people do deserve what they're getting. Even then, we should still have pity on them and we should always have pity on everyone. And when God, we have pity on other people, then they, God in turn has pity on us. Let me just finish off with one final lesson from Jonah and perhaps the most powerful lesson of all. The Zohar tells us that the story of Jonah is the story of our lives. And the story of Jonah is really a metaphor. It's a metaphor for every single person and for the story of his life. We, in in the story, Jonah is the soul. Every one of us have a godly soul that are sent down here to this earth by God on a mission. The boat that, we go, that Jonah goes to is our body. Everybody is sent down. Their soul is sent into their body. And the sea that we, this boat goes on is our world. And what happens is our, our world, the world that we live in, the world that we live in. Just as Jonah tries to escape God's instructions, we do the same thing. God sent every one of us here on a mission. We're here for a purpose. What is that mission? So God gave us instructions. For Jews, it's the 613 commandments. For non-Jews, God gave what we call the Noahide laws. We have rules, instructions for every person that everyone's supposed to keep. Everyone has a unique mission. And we follow it through following God's commandments. God gave us instructions. We often try to do what Jonah did. We often try to escape. 
We try to run away from God. We try to escape from our mission. We get caught up. We have a Yiddish word, narishkeiten, foolishness. We get caught up in all sorts of silly things, all sorts of useless things that people get obsessed with. Um, People get carried away with all sorts of things that we would not send down to earth for, whether they're hobbies, whether they're um, obsessions, whether they're even um, personal things that we do. Um, the classical, I've mentioned them in previous classes, we get obsessed with sports, we get obsessed with health, we get obsessed with exercise, we get obsessed with um, uh, with our with hockey, we get obsessed with um, whatever other with uh, golf. With uh, it, this, it's endless with politics. We get obsessed with so many different things with cars, with homes. We get it with our work. There's so many different things that we get obsessed with, and so it's so easy to get try to escape God. We get lured into our own enjoyment, enjoyment of the physical world, materialism, selfishness. We get carried away. We go on the ship and we try to run away from God. And then here's what happens. Just as God sent Jonah a message by sending a storm, God sends stormy waters our way. And everybody has this in life. You get the storms of life start coming your way. Things don't go the way they should. Things don't go the way you like. Things don't go the way you want them to. And all sorts of upheavals come. Regular hardships, investments fail, loved ones get sick, relationships struggle. All sorts of different problems in life. We lose our jobs. All sorts of different things happen. We ultimately don't know why God makes us suffer. But we do know that these hardships shake us from our complacency. And they remind us, why are we here? I just lost my job. I hear this from people so often, where people really give themselves over to their job. It becomes their life. They're working 70 hours a week. And then, out of the blue, they get laid off. That's it. It's all gone. All those 70 hours a week and those years they put in, what for? They could have worked 40 hours a week. They would have gotten laid off the same way. What was it all for? And suddenly they get shaken into or people who run triathlons and then suddenly their knee gives out and suddenly they get it shaken into complacency. And what was I doing? Yes, it was a good thing. My job was important, but maybe I was a little, God is sending me a message. I was getting a little bit too obsessed with what I was doing. So God keeps sending us these messages. We get too obsessed with what we're doing and he sends us, not always, not every time you lose your job is it necessarily, of course. But it often happens, and we know ourselves when this happens. And so God sends us messages. And then we get the captain of the ship comes our way. The captain of the ship is our conscience. Uh, conscience. And our conscience comes and tells us, you know, maybe we've got to refocus a little bit. Maybe we're headed a little bit in the wrong direction. We've got to turn around, and we've got to head in the right direction. And we all have that role. We have to recognize that we're here on a mission, and that's really the same theme of the Song of Ha'azinu in this week's Torah reading that we spoke about earlier. It's really the exact same theme, where what often happens is, we firstly, we get these negative things. When we get them, wake up. Take that moment. Don't ignore it. When God sends you a message, don't ignore it. Take the message and learn to refocus on whatever God wants from you. Refocus on good things. Refocus on making an impact. Refocus on changing our world. Refocus on doing what God wants. 
But then there's also another message, which is sometimes, and it's also the message of this week's Torah reading, that we get complacent because things are going well, and then we get off track, and then God needs to send us a message. Don't wait for that message. Don't wait for it. Yom Kippur, God sent us once a year, and we say this in our prayers, God gave us a gift of Yom Kippur once a year. He gave us the gift of a Day of Atonement. In other words, don't wait to lose your job to realize that there's no need to work 70 hours a week and you're overly obsessed with your job instead of the more important things in life. You don't need to wait for that. Yom Kippur is the moment, the day, that you can think back and say, maybe I need a refocus. Don't wait for yourself to get hurt. Don't wait for your relationship to take a toll. Don't wait for the problems to come. Don't wait for God's message until you recalibrate. Do it beforehand. Wake up on Yom Kippur. Do it now. Don't go to sleep like Jonah and wait for all the trouble to come. Do it earlier. Don't try to escape. Do it now. Do it earlier, and then you can be assured that the, that the negative messages that God sends our way won't come after all. So that is our lesson from Jonah. It's a very powerful story, which is why we read it on Yom Kippur. So that's ended. <laughs>